Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come in. Come in quickly. Close the door. Yes, yes, finally. Finally, it is cold out there. Out there, the wind is blowing, tree branches are creaking, tapping one against the other, but in here. Ah, in here, it is warm, it is cozy, the light flickers, and there is a scent of apples, cinnamon again, and, well... Well, I wish there were the crackle of burning logs and a smell of pine, but alas, we'd have to go up another flight of stairs and visit our neighbors if we wanted to sit by the hearth and hear our tales told by firelight. Alas. At any rate, welcome. I'm Lawrence Santoro, and welcome to the Nook, to Tales to Terrify. Welcome to the Friday before Thanksgiving. We'll have a rather busy time tonight, so I won't say very much. Two short tales, one cold and one chilly. We'll take a walk with Mike Allen as he takes us on his tenth tour of the abattoir. A solo outing for Mike this month with his fellow abattoirista Shallon Hurlbert taking some time off. And we will have our first ever interview with an author. So let's dig in. Begin with a story. It's a cold little story, a story of hard choices, and it's by Anna Taborska. Anna has been here before, twice before, as a matter of fact. Halloween Lights featured prominently during your sixth visit to the Nook, I believe it was, and her cat tale, Schrodinger's Human, tingled our fancy in show 34, and received Dewclaws Up from Mahler, the ink-black cat of the Nook. 
Anna was born in London, England, and is an award-winning filmmaker and writer of horror tales, screenplays, and poetry. Her stories have appeared in anthologies such as The Black Book of Horror in the UK and Best New Writing 2011, Best New Werewolf Tales, Volume 1, and The Best Horror of the Year, Volume 4, in the U.S. Anna's short story, Bagpuss, was an Eric Hoffer Award honoree. She recently finished work on a collection of horror novelettes entitled Bloody Britain. Tonight's tale, well, snuggle down, children, and have a listen to Little Pig by Anna Taborska. Pyotr waited nervously in the International Arrivals Hall of Heathrow Airport's Terminal 1. Born and bred in London, Pyotr had never thought of himself as the type of guy who would import a wife from Poland. His parents had made sure that he learnt Polish from an early age, while his English friends had played football or watched Swap Shop on Saturday mornings. Piotr had been dragged kicking and screaming to Polish classes in Ealing. But it had all paid off in the end when he went to Poland one summer and met Christina. Since that time, Christina had moved to London and moved in with Piotr. They were engaged to be married, and it seemed to Piotr that all the members of Christina's family had already visited London and stayed with them, all, that is, except Christina's grandmother. And that was who Piotr was now waiting for. Christina had not been able to get the day off work, and Piotr was now anxiously eyeing every elderly woman who came through the arrival gate in the hope that one of them would match the tattered photograph that Christina had given him. Eventually, a little old lady came out alone. Piotr recognized her immediately and started to walk towards her, stopping abruptly as he saw the woman slip drop her glasses and, in a desperate effort to right herself, step on them, crushing them completely. Upset for the woman, Piotr began to rush forward only to halt as she started to laugh hysterically. She muttered something under her breath and, had he not known any better, Piotr could have sworn that what she said was, Little pig. The sleigh sped through the dark forest, the scant moonlight reflected by the snow lighting up the whites of the horse's eyes as it galloped along the narrow path, nostrils flaring and velvet mouth spitting foam and blood into the night. The woman cried out as the reins cut into her hands and screamed to her children to hang on. The three little girls clung to each other and to the sides of the sleigh, their tears freezing onto their faces as soon as they formed. The corner of the large blanket in which their mother had wrapped them for the perilous journey to their grandparents' house had come loose and was flapping violently in the icy air. "'Hold on to Vitek!' the woman screamed over her shoulder at her eldest child, her voice barely audible over the howling wind. But the girl did not need to be told. Only two days away from her seventh birthday, she clung unto her baby brother, fear for her tiny sibling stronger than her own terror. The other two girls, aged two and four, huddled together, lost in an incomprehensible world of snow and fear and darkness. The woman whipped the reins against the horse's heaving flanks, but the animal was already running on a primal fear stronger than pain. The excited yelps audible over the snowstorm left little doubt in the woman's mind. 
The pack was gaining on the sleigh. The hungry wolves were getting closer. That winter had been particularly hard on the wolf pack. The invading Russian army had taken the peasants' livestock, and with no farm animals to snatch, the wolves had been limited to seeking out those rabbits and wildfowl that the desperate peasants and fleeing refugees had not killed and eaten. Driven half-mad with starvation, the wolves had already invested an irrevocable amount of energy in chasing the horse, and instinct informed them that it was too late to give up now. They had to feed or had to die. The horse was wheezing, the blood freezing in its nostrils as it strained through the snow. Its chestnut coat was matted with sweat whipped up into a dirty foam. Steam rose off its back like smoke, giving the bizarre impression that the animal was on fire. The woman shouted at the horse, willing it on, and brought the reins down against its flanks. She had only been fending for herself for three days, since the soldiers had tied her husband to a tree, cut off his genitals, and sawn him in half with a blunt saw. But she knew instinctively that without the horse, she and her children would die. If the starving wolves did not kill them, the cold would. They still had many miles to travel, and they would never make it on foot. The time had come to resort to the last hope her children had left. The woman pulled on the reins, slowing the horse to a more controlled pace. She tied the reins to the sleigh, the horse running steadily along the forest path. She tried not to look at her shaking, crying children clinging on to each other as they were thrown around the sleigh. The pitiful sight would break her, and she must not break. She must not lose the battle to keep her children alive. "'Good girls,' she muttered, without looking back. "'Hold on to your brother.' She stood up carefully in the speeding sleigh and reached over the side, unfastening the buckles on the wicker basket attached there. She opened the lid as slowly and as carefully as the shaking sleigh would allow. The sight that greeted her made her stomach turn, as fear for her children gave way to shock and panic. She howled in despair. A sudden jerky movement sent her sprawling back into the sleigh. She pulled herself up and clawed at the basket again, tearing the whole thing off in an effort to change the unchangeable. "'Little pig!' screamed the woman, her eyes wild and unseen. The children screamed, too, the madness in their mother's voice destroying the last remnant of safety and order in their world. "'Little pig!' she screamed. "'They took the little pig!' The woman fell back onto her seat. The horse was slowing. An expectant howl pierced the darkness behind the sleigh. The woman grabbed the reins and struck at the horse's flanks again. The animal snorted and strained onwards, but even in her panic, the woman knew that if she tried to force any more speed out of it, she would kill it and all her children with it. The howling and snarling grew closer, forcing the horse's fear onto a new level. It reared and tried to bolt, almost overturning the sleigh, but its exhaustion and the snow prevented its escape from the hungry pack. The wolves were beginning to fan out on either side of the sleigh, still behind it, but not far off. One of the beasts, a battle-scarred individual with protruding ribs and cold yellow eyes, broke away from the others and made a dash for the horse, nipping at its heels. 
The horse screamed and kicked out, catching the wolf across the snout and sending it tumbling into the trees. It pulled itself up in seconds and started back after its companions. The reins almost slipped from the woman's bleeding, freezing hands. She tightened her grip, wrapping the reins around her wrist. If only they were closer to her parents' village, she could let the wolves have the horse. It was the horse that they were after, but without the horse, they would all freeze in the snow long before they reached safety. The pack was catching up with the sleigh now. The wolves spilled forward, biting at the horse. The woman shouted at the wolves, whipped at them and at the horse with the reins, but there was nothing she could do. She cast a glance at her daughters, the two little ones pale as sheets, Irena holding on to Vitek as if he were life itself, and Vitek, her perfect little boy. The woman remembered her husband's face when she first told him he had a son. His face had lit up. He had taken the little boy from her and held him in his big, strong arms. Her husband. Then an image of the last time she had seen him, seen his mutilated corpse tied to the old walnut tree in the orchard. She was back in the present, fighting to save her children, losing the fight to save her children. The little pig was gone. She had put it in the wicker basket at the side of the sleigh and fastened the straps when the soldiers were getting drunk inside her house. She had gone back to the barn to get the children, to flee with them under cover of darkness to what she hoped would be the relative safety of her parents' village. Someone must have seen her put the little pig in the basket, someone cruel enough to take the time to do up the straps after sentencing her children to death in the wolf-infested forest. The little pig was gone, and another sacrifice was needed in its place to protect the horse. The woman prepared to jump out of the sleigh. She turned to Irena and shouted, Give Vitek to Kasha. Irena stared at her mother blankly. Give your brother to Kasha. The woman's voice rose to an hysterical pitch. Four-year-old Kasha clung onto her two-year-old sister, and Irena began to cry, clutching her brother even tighter. Give him to her, screamed the woman. I need you to hold the reins. But even as she said it, she knew that the six-year-old would never be able to control the terrified horse. Her own hands were a bloody ruin, and she wondered how she was able to hang on as the frantic animal fought its way forward. Irena, give Vitek to Kasha now. But Irena saw something in her mother's eyes that scared her more than the dark and the shaking sleigh and even the wolves. She clutched her brother to her chest and shook her head, fresh tears rolling down her face and freezing to her cheeks. A large silver wolf clamped its jaws onto the horse's left hind leg. The horse stumbled but managed to right itself, and the wolf let go, unable to keep up with the horse in the deep snow, but not for long. As the chestnut reeled, the sleigh lurched, and the woman panicked. She had to act now or lose all her children. She could not give her life for them, because they would never make it to safety without her. But a sacrifice had to be made. If she could not die to save her children, then one of them would have to die to save the others. She would not lose them all. One of them would have to die, and she would have to choose. 
the delicate fabric of the woman's sanity was finally stretched to its limits and gave way. She threw back her head and howled her anguish into the night. All around her the night howled back. The woman turned and looked into the faces of her children. A sharp intake of breath, like that taken by one about to drown. She took the reins in one hand, and with the other she reached out for her beloved son, her husband's greatest joy, the frailest of her children, half frozen despite his sister's efforts to keep him warm, too exhausted even to cry, and the least likely to survive the journey. "'Give him to me!' she screamed at Irena. The girl struggled with her mother. The woman wrenched her baby out of her daughter's grasp and held him to her, gazing for a moment into his eyes. The woman smiled through her tears at her son. Snow was falling on the baby's upturned face. The frost had tinged his lips a pale blue. But in the woman's fevered mind, her baby smiled back at her. Two of the wolves had closed in on the horse and were trying to bring it down. The woman screamed and threw Vitek as far from the sleigh as she could. There was a moment's silence, then a triumphant yelping as the wolves turned their attention away from the horse and rushed away into the night. Irena cried out, and her little sister stared uncomprehendingly at their mother, who screamed and screamed as she grabbed the reins in both hands and whipped the horse on into the dark. As the first light of dawn broke across the horizon, an eerie light greeted the sleepy village. The sleigh rolled in slowly as the exhausted horse made it within sight of the first farmhouse. It stood for a moment, head drooping, blood seeping from its nostrils, its mouth, from open wounds along its flanks. Then it dropped silently to the ground and lay still. In the sleigh sat a wild-eyed woman, staring but unseen, her black hair streaked with white, reins clenched tightly in her bloody hands. Behind her were three little girls. Two were slumped together, asleep. The third girl, the eldest of three, was awake. She sat very still, eyes wide, silent as her mother. Irena, Piotr reached the old lady and touched her arm. I'm Piotr. He bent down and picked up what was left of Irena's glasses. I'm sorry about your glasses, he told her, handing the crushed reins back to her. No need to be sorry, said Irena. It's just a little pig. Piotr was taken aback. It was bad enough taking care of Christina's relatives, but she had never said that her grandmother was senile. Irena read Piotr like an open book. A little pig, she explained. A small sacrifice to make sure nothing really terrible happens during my visit. I understand, said Piotr. He did not understand, but at least there was some method in the old lady's madness, and that was good enough for him. He paid the parking fee at the ticket machine, and they left the building. A tall young man pushing a trolley, and a little old lady clutching a pair of broken glasses. Thank you for that, Anna. 
Little Pig was adapted for the screen and was a finalist in the Shriekfest Film Festival screenplay competition in 2009. You can watch clips from Anna's films, including The Rain Has Stopped, which won two awards at the 2009 British Film Festival, Los Angeles. You can also view her full bio on the IMDb. Just put in her name and read. You can visit Anna at her blog, 52 Stitches, by clicking on the link below. And, oh, she does book trailers as well. Yes, go to YouTube and put in Anna Taborska, or, of all things, you could type in Drink for the Thirst to Come and have a look. Thank you, Anna. That's a terrific tale. And again, thank you to Celia Santoro for a terrific reading. In addition to being a retired teacher of French, Cecilia is a painter, a poet, and the love of my life. I am a flibberty gibbet at times, I think I've mentioned that, and I forgot to remind you. We are four now. The District of Wonders has four neighborhoods, and I hope you'll become a regular visitor to it. First, the Starship Sofa with Captain Tony C. Smith plies the time and spaceways for you weekly. Dave Robison spins out tales of thrilling adventure and daring do over at Protecting Project Pulp. And, of course, there is that neighborhood of murder and mayhem where Inspector Jack Calverly invites your ears to peruse the files at Crime City Central. And speaking of the mothership... We all know Black Friday looms ahead. That's the day after Thanksgiving when shop clerks all over the parts of Christendom that also celebrate Thanksgiving will be under siege by ravening hordes of shoppers seeking, demanding, devouring bargains. Well, not to be outdone. And beginning before Thanksgiving, this coming Monday, the 19th of November, in fact, and continuing until the 25th of November, the Starship Sofa will hold a black hole sale. One whole week of Black Fridays. Yes, what does the Starship have to sell, you wonder? Not, alas, their books, no, but every video, workshop, or lecture ever produced by the good ship Starship Sofa will be half price. Most of these sell normally for 30 pounds, but during the whole of Black Hole Week, all will be half-priced, 15 quid. And I am sure that the magic money changers in the Internet machines will convert that to whatever currency you fold into your wallets. These bargains, by the way, include the time travel lecture, normally 30 pounds, Black Hole priced at 15 Sherlock Holmes video lecture, Hunger Games video lecture, and yes, this past weekend's How to Write Science Fiction with Joe Haldeman, now at 30 pounds, black hole priced at 15 quid. We've got the Narrator's Workshop number one, I think that's the one I'm in, Narrator's Workshop number two, Writer's Workshop number one, Writer's Workshop number two, Screenwriter's Workshop, and the Starship Sofa original shows normally at £14.99, Black Hole priced at seven fifty. So stop by and buy. I don't think the 
information is up quite yet. But keep watching our site or the Starship Sofa site or any of the other sites on the District of Wonders, and I'm sure you'll see it. Okay, we will take a little break from fiction now, and I will turn you over to the incarnadined hands of Mr. Mike Allen, who will lead you on trip 10 of his series, A Tour of the Abattoir. Mike? Greetings, Tales to Terrify listeners, and welcome to another installment of Tour of the Abattoir. I'm Mike Allen, and I'm here to share my thoughts with you on the latest developments in the House of Horror and shine light into some of its obscure and unholy corners. I'm always in the middle of something as I put one of these things together, and this time... I'm reading submissions for the anthology that I'm assembling, Clockwork Phoenix 4, which you can read more about at clockworkphoenix.com. Because of this, I've been reading a lot of short stories. And since I'm in a short story sort of mood, I thought I'd talk about some new short fiction. The world of horror has been lucky enough to have a major new fiction magazine launch. As of last month, John Joseph Adams, editor and publisher of the science fiction and fantasy magazine Lightspeed, as well as the editor of numerous anthologies, debuted his new horror magazine, Nightmare, with the help of a successful Kickstarter campaign that ran earlier this year. You've already gotten a sample of this new Nightmare if you're a regular listener to Tales to Terrify. One of the stories from the first issue... Frontier Death Song by Laird Barron was included in last month's Tales to Terrify lineup. I don't see any point in reviewing a story that you should all go listen to yourselves, but I can at least tell you what the rest of the stories are like. Based on the opening sample, I don't think I can make any conclusions yet about whether Nightmare is going to adhere to any particular style of horror. None of the other stories have quite the epic sweep or weird humor of Baron's tale. They're all set pieces that take place in intimate spaces. And three of the four stories I'm going to talk about have a kind of twisted family angle. The fourth is perhaps notable for its lack of family or friendship values, but it's still essentially small-scale in its drama. Nightmare Number 1 opened with Property Condemned by Jonathan Mayberry. Mr. Mayberry is something of a celebrity, and if you're a fan, you'll want to know that this novelette returns to the setting in some of the characters of his first trilogy of novels, Ghost Road Blues, Dead Man's Song, and Bad Moon Rising. But this story was my first experience with him as a reader. Property Condemned spins a rather Stephen King-esque tale of four childhood friends who pay a visit to a haunted house. The characters are all familiar types, and frankly, the goings-on have a bit of a twee feeling to them until we actually get inside the house and Mayberry reveals the nature of the monster lurking inside. This is the point where I have to shout, SPOILER ALERT! though I will try to be judicious in my explanation. What's lurking inside is basically a magic mirror that confronts each child with the sins of their future. 
They're all shown what awful things await for them down the road, what dreams they won't realize, what traumas they will endure, and what terrible crimes they'll commit. The effect on these young minds, needless to say, is devastating. The story ends up becoming powerful and disturbing, despite its hackneyed premise and initially humdrum execution. It's worth hanging in there for the payoff. By contrast, Genevieve Valentine's Good Fences, the third story of issue one, creates a wonderfully creepy atmosphere right from the start, but for this reader, at least, had no payoff. You can debate whether a story really has to have a payoff, and of course there's no rule that requires climactic action, but in this instance I felt whatever Good Fences was building toward, it ended feeling unfinished. Valentine's choice of theme has been explored in horror before, but it's still ripe for new takes. Their narrator, a single, withdrawn fellow who lives in an urban neighborhood where everyone seems scared to talk to one another, notices that a car has caught fire on his street. He doesn't call the police about it because he's afraid of reprisals from the neighborhood hoodlums. No one else in the neighborhood calls either. And as the days go by and the burnt-out husk of the car continues to deteriorate, its presence haunts our narrator non-hero on a strange, primal level. There's a subtext to the story about a whole society afraid of the consequences of communication that's excellently realized, that's in a way more interesting than whatever's going to happen to the story's protagonist, which turns out to be not much. There's a final revelation about what's inside the car that's commendable for its hallucinatory quality, but given that this is a horror story, it's not a revelation that's very surprising. My favorite story of the first issue, even more than the Laird Baron story, was the final one by award-winning writer Sarah Langan called Afterlife. Now this is some twisted stuff. Even the basics of the premise, a haunted hoarder's house, might give you the shivers. A mother and daughter live in this house, both of whom are mentally disturbed in different ways. The mother is the hoarder. The daughter talks to ghosts. She tries to help them leave this world for the next before they become trapped forever. It's especially urgent that they listen to her because she and her mother are about to be evicted from the house after neglecting the mortgage payments for years. Langan's portrayal of the daughter, who's never been taught how to interact with the world, is arresting and moving, and remains so even as the daughter's resentment of her mother comes to a boil. The hoarding and the haunting have a surprising connection that plays into a conclusion that's both tragic and weirdly optimistic. I highly recommend this story. It would probably also make for a good Tales to Terrify podcast, for that matter. Larry, if you're listening, I hope you catch the hint. Issue 2 of Nightmare Magazine has come out this month, and it's a mix of reprints and original stories. Adam's strategy appears to be to start by releasing the entire issue as an e-book, then slowly make each of the four stories per issue available free online at a rate of one a week. That doesn't seem like a bad strategy overall. I decided to review the first original story of Issue 2, since it's already available. Desirina Boscovich's 
construction project is yet another horror tale that takes place in a small space. This time we have a clearly disturbed young couple who are turning their apartment into a survivalist bunker to shield them from a, quote, beast, unquote. Beast is always capitalized in the story. That they believe will hunt them down. Here I have to issue another spoiler alert. So plug your ears if you don't want to know this next bit. There's a very real chance that the beast doesn't exist anywhere other than in the couple's minds. The gruesome resolution unfolds with a sort of sad, poetic understatement. But I'm afraid I must admit that it ultimately left me scratching my head in confusion more than it left me particularly moved or chilled. The way my editor brain would put it, is that I was left with no real sense of consequence, no clue as to what the couple's fate means in relation to the wonderfully creepy scenario that came before that Boscovich spent so much time building up. She gets points, though, for originality. Based on what I've read so far, I guess what I can conclude is that Nightmare is much more interested in psychological horror than it is in gore or traditional monsters, and that's fine. And it's definitely worth keeping an eye on, though not every story may work for you every time out. You can check it out at NightmareMagazine.com, specifically that's Nightmare-Magazine.com. And with that, I'm going to check out myself, although hopefully not for good. Until next time, stay scared. But of course I'm listening, Dave. Afterlife? Well, we have connected with Sarah, and we have secured her permission to read it for you here in the nook. And so we shall, very, very soon. Laird Barron's Frontier Death Song, by the way, aired on October 12 in show number 40. You can listen to it again by going to our archives. Frontier Death Song was incredibly ably voiced by Dave Robison, the host of our near neighbor here in the District of Wonders, protecting Project Pulp. I mentioned last week that we, the reader of that last story and I, had hied ourselves to the World Fantasy Convention in, well, it was almost in Toronto over the Halloween weekend. While there, I here and there praise the virtues of our little weekly gatherings in the nook and of Tales to Terrify, Volume 1 in particular. Hopefully, I sold a few people on the notion of stopping by to listen, and if you're one of those, welcome. Good to see you. Hope you enjoy yourselves. And to buy a copy of the book. I mean to do the same here and now, and, and I urge you to go to our website, TalesToTerrify.com, and click on the Buy the Book button, and, well, buy the book. I'm delighted that a few of you have done just that, and I'm also saddened that just a few of you have done that to date, and that many of you have not done it. I hope you will amend your ways. Also, at the convention, I found myself at the Horror Writers Association table in the dealer's room, sharing meet-and-greet duties with Miss Nancy Kilpatrick. 
Nancy is an old friend from conventions way past, and she's also a contributor to the aforementioned Tales to Terrify, Volume 1. And since we have her story between the covers, I thought it only proper that we read it to you here on the show, and that I have a little chat with Nancy to share with you tonight. So, here, without added fuss, is Nancy Kilpatrick, liveish from darn near Toronto, and that will be followed directly by her story, An Eye for an Eye. This is Larry Santoro. I'm talking from Canada this time, rather than the Nook, and I'm talking to Nancy Kilpatrick, author, editor, and all-around good person. Nancy has a new group of books out from Edge, one Danse Macabre, and the other The Vampiric Variations. Variations. Thank you very much. What would you like to say about those? Danse Macabre is, is a collection. Uh, no, it's an actually anthology. an anthology Sorry. of other people's stories. I'm the editor. And uh, this came out of my love of this artwork, which is from the Middle Ages. It's uh, also called Plague Art, and it's mm. very specific artwork that came about because of the plagues, and so many people in Europe were dying, and the population was decimated by something like 50% over several centuries. So everyone knew someone who was dying, so it was a very bleak time. And uh, back then in the 1400s, they had uh, not, not cemeteries as we know them now, but boneyards. And uh, these were walled in areas where the, the dead were taken and just <laughs> put on top of the previous dead. I'm not dead yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I guess there was some of that too. <laughs> so an anonymous artist came along one day, and this was in Paris, this uh, cemetery. I'm talking about the Cemetery of the Innocents, and painted on the inside walls uh, these depictions of skeletons in this position where they're in some way calling or luring or enticing or forcing somebody across the veil uh, who is a living person. So basically it's uh, leading the person into a dance of death. And uh, this artwork struck a chord with the people. And another person went and wrote some poetry under it. And we only know what this looked like because an artist, Hans Holbein Jr., was able to uh, replicate this artwork so that he could print it in a book. He could make um, uh, but uh, impressions of them into a book. Uh, so we know what this original artwork looked like. And it was very popular artwork and was uh, replicated in all over Europe in the style of the country that it was in. So in, the Italians had their style and the Germans had their style. English uh, have dance macabre as well. There's probably 50 pieces remaining of the original works from the 14, 15, 16, 1700s. Uh, everything else is gone because uh, usually they were on these boneyards. Um, and, of course, this boneyard was, that I mentioned was finally... Uh, when they, they realized there was bacteria <laughs> coming here, and this was not a good thing, uh, they took the bones and they put them underground, and hence we have the catacombs in Paris. So, uh, But then they started replicating it on monastery walls and nunnery walls and inside churches and outside churches and anywhere that connected up with some sort of religious belief about death and resurrection. And uh, I like this artwork a lot because it's... Uh, it's rare for one thing, so when I find it, I jump up and down in glee that there's another one that still exists. It's very hard to locate, uh, but I find the simplicity of the artwork is quite beautiful. That people, the arts to me are always this area where people are. Uh, 
Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Able to understand something in their life through the metaphor of art. And this is one of the horrific things that happened in human history to people. And trying to make sense of it, the artwork shows very clearly and one of the ideas behind it is that all people will die and often they were presenting images of the kings and the queens and the popes and the accountants and the lawyers just to show the common people who were so heavily hit by the the plagues that it's not just you take some consolation in the fact that this is a human condition not only you, but even these people who have it so much better than you will also succumb. It's part of life. So there's that aspect of it. And the simplicity of the presentation is quite beautiful to me. I know you're something of a world traveler. While you were in the process of putting this book together, did you make any travels to Europe specifically for the for the book itself? No. Um, when I was putting this book together, no. I'd been there before several mm-hmm. times and since. Uh, but not during the presentation of it. What I was trying to do was take this visual art form and turn it into literature. So I had very specific guidelines, and the poor writers who got the guidelines were just bamboozled a lot of them. They just didn't know what I was doing uh, because I was trying to show it. I was putting links of what it was about, and people would write back and say, oh, you want a story about somebody dying? No, (laughs) that's not it. (laughs) I can write you something about death. No, have a look at the artwork and see what this is about, how the presentation goes. So I worried a little bit at the beginning thinking, I'm not going to get anybody who understands what I'm trying to do, so this is not going to work. But I was surprised. Stories came in, and people did grasp, some people did grasp the concept and were able to write stories that did reflect what is in that artwork. Uh, And there's all types of stories in the book. I mean, in these presentations of uh, death that you see in in the actual artwork, you get the same thing as in the stories. 
There are skeletons that are very sad to be drawing people over. There are skeletons that are jokesters. They're playing tricks on people. They'll go to a beggar who has one leg, and they'll pretend to have one leg. They'll put one leg up behind them and see, I'm just like you. You know, we're both one-legged. Let's, just you know, to draw them. Come in. on over yeah. <laughs> to my yeah. side. Uh, there are ones that are kind of mean and vicious, and you can see that on them. Uh, there are ones that are laughing at us. And, of course, they also play instruments because it's a dance, so they need music. So there's a lot of things happening in this. And the stories reflect this. It's a very interesting book that has, I have to say, I've not seen anything like it. It's not been done before. And uh, I think this this is a unique presentation, and I hope people enjoy it when they read it. I think they will. I, I think so, too. I mean, I picked it up moments ago, well, several hours ago, and I've just had a chance to skim a bit of it, and it looks really fascinating, and I, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. By the way, the Holbein you were talking about, is that the Holbein of the Tudor portraiture fame? Uh, Hans Holbein Jr. There was the father and the son. Right. And there was another Holbein in there, too. Uh, I think there's three. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I think it it might be. I don't know. That would have been late 1500s. Mid 1500s. Probably the right time frame. Yeah. The the plague plagued Europe for several centuries. And I know it was the cause of incredible social upheaval. and, and, And the entire system, feudal system, pretty much collapsed. Well, society in, broke down. Yeah, beginning in the 1200s, I think, 13... It, I think the plagues so, started 13, around... 40, there were pla- from, they came from Turkey, I think. They weren't then, the same plague. It was yeah. several plagues yeah, that hit. Yeah, bubonic and pneumonic yeah, and all kinds of septicemic plagues. and all that, yeah. They didn't know anything about no, um, no. Uh, uh, what we call cleanliness today <laughs> and, they, and how to protect yourself yeah. from germs and so on. But I, I'm really looking forward to, to reading this. There's some I, really good writers in there. I mean, incredible. Well, there's Tanith Lee's got a story yeah. in there. Brian Lumley's got a story. Tom Piccarelli, who's a great writer. Yeah. Lucy Taylor, who's a fantastic writer's got a story set in Mexico with the uh, Dia de los Muertos mm-hmm. images and the Lady Death. Um, yeah, Lisa Morton's got a great story that leads off the anthology, which features Hans Holbein Jr. So there's a really, really good cast. Yeah. Brian Hodge, who I've never read a bad story uh, yeah. by Brian yeah. Hodge. Yeah. I love yeah. his writing. Uh, and there's lots of people that you won't know who are new writers who also Excellent. have some wonderful Excellent. stories in there. I love that. I love when, when we can mix... People we've never heard of and people that are yeah, really famed so they can me draw too. each other together yeah. and like that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And I'm hoping Excellent. eventually, somewhere down the line, we can have a story or two from it uh, for Tales to Terrify. That would be great. Uh, and I'd like to talk to the writers, of course, mm-hmm. and to you and see when that can work out. Um, are you in it? I no, mean, because I'm the your, editor. I, yeah. I'm not one of those people yeah. who likes to put my stories. And I have that's, done that in the past. Reasonable. This is my 12th anthology, mm-hmm. Dance Macabre. But er, my early anthologies, because of the publisher I worked for, um, the, the pay was so bad yeah, well. <laughs> that to actually get the wordage, hey, I had, I had hey. to insert one of my own stories for free. Yeah. Uh, so I did that then, but it's not really something I think makes sense when you're the editor. You can't edit your own story. You can't really see it perfectly in terms of yeah. what you're trying to yeah. do. Just off the top of my pretty little head, uh, Nancy has, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, 18 novels, uh, the uh, goth Bible That's nonfiction. nonfiction. Over 200 stories published, uh, 12, 12, this is the 12th This is the 12th, anthology. I've already got my 13th uh, so organized. 
tell me a little bit now about the vampiric um, variations. <laughs> variations. <laughs> bad Larry, bad Larry. Well, it's a collection of seven short stories and three novellas of mine, all on vampires, of course. And it's called Variations. You say, of course. Oh, of course. Let us because, discourse upon that well, <laughs> in a moment. But tell me more about this. Okay. Um, yeah, so uh, the variations part comes from the fact that I've got different types of vampires in there. Uh, So I was trying to present uh, the first part of the book. The short stories are called Old School, New School. So you're looking at the old vampire and the newer versions of the vampire. None of this is young adult material. It's not Twilight-like at all. It's uh, for adults. I shudder. (laughs) And then the second part, the novellas, is called Sex and the Morning After, as in (laughs) M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. So there are different takes on that as well. Yeah. Uh, so I was trying to present different ways of looking at the vampire, and uh, the novellas are the more, <laughs> if you if you want to call them romantic, some of them are romantic if you like really awful well. situations, and then some of them are are okay, and then the stories are else uh, other things they involve. Some of them involve mythology. Uh, the first story that Vecchi Barbat does. Um, there's another one that's uh, about Dracula being in London, which is in the the original Dracula, sure. what he did during that time period that he was there. Uh, there's a story that uh, was published in a British publication, which I figured mo- nobody would have seen much in North America. Um, the publication was The Bitten Word, and the story is... Um, <laughs> well, I know it's around, but it's not in every bookstore the way it is in the UK. That's what I'm trying to get at. So sure. people don't really run across it here. You have to make an effort to find it. Uh, so that story is called um, Future Perfect, and in it it talks about the vampires that will be and how they will be able to live in society known as vampires and how that will work in terms of them, in terms of us. Not like true blood. Not at all like true blood, no. (laughs) You are known rather peculiarly, not not in the peculiar way, but rather specifically as a vampire writer. Because I've Um, written so much vampire stuff. Not only, this is what people know, they say, oh, you wrote that? I thought you only wrote, no. zombies. I do zombies. And in fact, the story we have (laughs) of yours in Tales to Terrify, Volume 1, is almost a straightforward crime, revenge An eye for an eye. Yeah, an eye for an eye. And uh, that is certainly not vampire. No, it's not. I've done a lot that's not. But you are known as a vampire. I'm known, I think, because uh, when I first started writing, uh, the two books that came out Almost simultaneously, we're near death, which is the first book mm-hmm. in my Power of the Blood world, and that was Vampire yeah. from Pocket Books. And the other book that came out was an erotic retelling of Dracula called The Darker Passions of Dracula. So both of those are vampires, and and things got locked in. And, of course, the Power of the Blood series is for vampire novels. So that plus people would want me to write vampire stories for anthologies, and yeah. it just kind of rolled. But I do a lot of other things. I hardly ever write a vampire story now, but I'm still known as yeah. the vampire lady. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I'm just funny. I, I was having a conversation with somebody here at the convention the other night, and they were disparaging, in, in some sense, of contemporary vampire work as being too romantic. They're making them too Byronic, and I pointed it out to her that vampire literature as we know it today, coming from the early 18th century, begins as a romantic trope. Uh, uh, Was it Osfelder? Well, in English, the first story is Polidori's Polidori's Vampire. Polidori's Vampire, and that's Byron. That is, it, well, fact, it was an excerpt. Of, it was a page Byron wrote when he was drunk and threw away. That's right. His and physician I, took it and wrote this a story. This person made the comment that they hated this contemporary 
<laughs> obsession with writing Byronic heroes, and I said, well, you know, Polidori <laughs> did write base vampire on Lord Byron, and earlier than that. This, That's what it's uh, thought to be, Os- yeah. <laughs> Osfelder, uh, uh, Henrich Osfelder, wrote a poem, which is a very short love poem of, of a vampire seducing a, 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 a living woman. So it begins that way. It does. And, and yet it, it, yeah, it I mean, even Dracula is romance. Oh, absolutely. And it's all undercurrents in the Victorian style. Yeah. Carmela is a romance. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Varney the Vampire, which was another, it was actually the first novel in English. It was predates mm-hmm. Dracula. Very long novel where Barney feels very guilty about sneaking into the bedrooms of women, yeah. biting them, and etc. We don't get the etc. part, but uh, he ends up throwing himself into Mount Vesuvius at the yeah. end yeah. of guilt. Yeah. But all of this is in the romantic realm. It's why the Victorians found this very titillating material to read. It wasn't mm-hmm. just the horrific part. I think we today, contemporaneously, have tired somewhat of vampires only because there is so much of it and so much dare I say, really bad stuff. I'll say it, yeah, Twilight, (laughs) for example. I mean, I tired of Anne Rice after the first book. I found that refreshing on Interview with a Vampire, and then after that it became just kind of overwhelmingly ponderous, and it just dragged me down, but that's beside the point. That's me. Well, I think we've been hit with a lot of young adult vampire and a lot of romance fiction that has it had already crossed into the supernatural realm, but it went full blast into vampires specifically. Yeah. So we get that plus young adult, and that's a certain type of vampire. Me, I've been reading and, and collecting this vampire literature for, oh, God, most of my life it seems now. I've got about 2,000 titles. The mm. whole room's ready to collapse. <laughs> These books. <laughs> Turn into black holes. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, there's I, I know where the vampire has been. I know how it's moved and how it's evolved. This is a type of vampire. It's not the whole enchilada, you know? So what we're seeing is one thing. It will not last forever. It goes through its phase, and then we move somewhere else. And there's already a bit of backlash. You see in some films and some books, there are people writing the more horrific vampire again sure. to go that way. 30 Days of uh, Night. <clears throat> yeah, that's a great which is, comic. Which is and, one of my favorite uh, vampire movies. Yeah, it's a really good movie. I, I was talking to somebody yeah. about it the other day at the convention, and we were discussing it. We both had the same reaction. The first time we saw it, we thought, eh. And then we watched it again and said, wow, this is great. How did I yeah. miss these things? Yeah. There's, there are flaws in the of film. Of course there are flaws. Absolute Most flaws films. Most films have flaws. But the concept is so yes. brilliant that yes. it, it presents itself such that you wonder why nobody had thought well, of this there before. There was a vampire, uh, uh, oh gosh, I don't remember her name, but there was a woman in the 90s who wrote a novel set in the Yukon, I believe, oh, so it was the same perfect. idea. Yes. Yeah. Why aren't there vampire Eskimos and such? I think her name was Scarborough, something oh, like that. Okay. Anyway, whatever. So where <laughs> do you go from here? What's up next? Well, I've got another anthology that's already put together. I was just uh, talking to the publisher here at the convention. And that's Edge. Edge, yeah. Edge Science Fiction and Fantasy, Mm -hmm. although they do horror now, thanks to me. (laughs) (laughs) They actually, they had never done horror. This is a publisher of Science Fiction and Fantasy. And they do do a series... Called Tesseracts, uh-huh. and uh, they took it over from another publisher, and it's numbered one, two, three, four, and so on. So they got up to number thirteen, and they got the idea that thirteen, right? Should it be, should be horror. horror. So they came to me and asked me if I'd be willing to edit it. And usually, the anthologies, the Tesseracts, are uh, co-edited. 
And I knew that David Morrell was Canadian, so I met him several times before. So I contacted him, and he was happy to co-edit with me. So the two of us edited, and these are open anthologies, and like 200-plus stories came rolling in <laughs> that we read, and we it took a long time. We had meetings in person, and we had meetings by phone and email and so on, making our list of our top stories. And when we agreed on them, great. And when we didn't, we'd have to negotiate. You know, I'll give you this, you give me that <laughs> kind of thing. What's so the title? It worked out. That is Tesseract 13. Tesseract 13. And yeah, that's... and that is horror dark fantasy. Okay, excellent. So when that's that... how Edge, uh, that's out. Oh, I came okay. out, yeah, I guess about nine, uh, 2009. What an idiot I am. <laughs> it's okay. on the Edge table. You can go have a look at <clears throat> I it shall. later. I shall. Uh, so from that, Edge started doing, um, they started doing that more because not being a person who lets paint dry very much, I went to them and I said, you know, <laughs> I've been collecting vampire books for a that. long time, <laughs> and I've had this idea to bring the vampire into the present because I know where it's been. I don't want to do anything that's been done before. I don't want to do the old vampire. I want to do, we've evolved as a species. What about the vampire evolving? You know, the vampire's here too with us right now uh, because the vampire has appeared in all cultures at different time frames except for two on this planet, which tells you this is something embedded in our human psyche. Which two? Uh, one is an Inuit culture, and the other one I don't remember at the moment, but there's, there's only two that haven't come up with a vampire mythology. So Edge uh, liked the idea, and I did a book called um, Evolve, Vampire Stories of the New Undead. And it wasn't young adult fiction. It was showing the vampire now and into the immediate future up to, say, 2025 max right now. Then when I finished that, I said, hmm, you know, I think we could actually look at what could happen from here on in. Uh, So I talked them into another anthology uh, called Evolve 2, which is, you know, kind of bad in a way because it's like a movie, you know, the son son of whatever. (laughs) Uh, Vampire Stories of the Future Undead. Uh And that book is uh, in three segments. It's in pre-apocalypse, post-apocalypse, and new world order. So it moves Uh from 2025 onward into the future and goes into science fiction. Right. So John Shirley's got a story in there. Tanith Lee's got a story in there. It's a very good anthology, like I think. Work. Like yeah, yeah. Much. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Nancy. I really appreciate your taking time here. And we're looking forward to, I'm looking forward to both the vampiric... Uh, variations. Uh, what is wrong with me? <laughs> the vampiric variations. And I look forward to, to the Dans Macabre. All and right. I look forward to the rest of the convention. And yeah. thank you so much. Thank you, thank Larry. You. It's been a joy to be here. An Eye for an Eye by Nancy Kilpatrick Alexander Mifflin was stabbing my mother as my brother Bill and I walked in the back door. I dropped the Eaton's shopping bag I carried and screamed. Last-minute gifts tumbled into the pools of bloody mincemeat. Mifflin turned. He and Bill fought. Bill outweighed him. He had wrestled at college. I rushed to my mother's blood-soaked body. The knife was lodged in her eye, and desperate I yanked it out. Mother died in my arms seconds before Bill brought her killer to the ground. Before I could dial 911. Before she could say goodbye. I know what you're thinking. The same thing the media is saying. I'm a psychopath. What makes me believe I have the right to be judge, jury, and executioner? Your silly questions have nothing to do with me. 
I have that right by virtue of the fact that I have fought to stay alive in the face of shattering despair. You know yourself it's survival of the fittest. You've thought that, even if you can't bring yourself to admit such a politically incorrect idea. I was a woman with a mission. Mission accomplished. If you'll hear me out, I know you'll understand. Four years after my mother's death, I came to the conclusion that murder is not so terrible. We all die anyway, so what's it matter when or how? That might seem a jaded statement, but you know in your heart you've thought the same thing. We all have. It follows, then, that if one murderer can get off virtually scot-free, why not another? Why not me? I used to believe in divine justice. Then I grew up. For a while, I had faith in our man-made justice system. When that failed, when jurisprudence let a guilty man walk away with his freedom and my mother's blood on his hands, I grew up some more. Who would avenge my mother? Who would stop that madman from repeating his crime against humanity? No one. No one but me. Let me start closer to the beginning, the easiest place to try and make sense of me and my crime, although there's no sense to his senseless crime. The evidence was tangible, not circumstantial. Alexander Mifflin, a 35-year-old Caucasian male, broke into our North Vancouver home on Christmas Eve, ostensibly to steal anything of value. My mother was preparing mincemeat pies for the holiday dinner the next day. The lights were out in the rest of the house. Apparently, she had been working in the kitchen, and when the sunset turned on only one light. He surprised her there. She fought him. She was a large, strongly built woman of Scandinavian ancestry who did not give herself over easily to being intimidated. No one would ever have called her a coward. Neither is her daughter. It was apparent they struggled. Chairs were overturned. The floor was a sea of mincemeat. A paring knife lay on the table to trim the crusts, but he reached to the white ash knife rack and pulled out a henkel with a six-inch blade. Mother always loved good knives and had the blades honed by the man with the knife-sharpening cart who came by weekly. The coroner commented on the sharpness of the blade, because the twenty-eight stab wounds were, for the most part, clean. There were seven in her chest, two in her stomach, one in her left leg. The knife penetrated her diaphragm. She was left-handed, and that side received the worst treatment, but the majority of the stab wounds were to her back, puncturing both lungs, one kidney, and because the blade was so long, her heart. The most gruesome sight was to her left eye, where I found the knife lodged. The blade had pierced her brain. As I withdrew it, pale matter seeped from the wound. I can still see the tissue, like wood pulp. I lived in a state of numbed grief. At the funeral, I couldn't cry. Later, when we sold the house, before I left for college, as Bill and I sorted through my mother's belongings and I asked for her knives, he stopped and advised me, Connie, try to forget what happened and get on with your life. But how could I forget? No 14-year-old should have to experience what I did. Unless you've seen death close up, you cannot know how shocking it is. When the body seems to sigh... When the light fades blue lace crystal eyes to flat dull agates, when a kind of gas, maybe it was her spirit, wafts from the open mouth and ascends, rippling the air, my mother was gone. Her murderer would pay. But he did not pay. Four years passed before Alexander Mifflin came to trial. I waited patiently through the delays, the motions and counter-motions. 
He opted for judge only, no jury, knowing that ordinary people would find his acts against my mother incomprehensible. Still, through my frozen grief, I had faith. But he'd had a bad childhood, a therapist testified, and had paid in advance. A minister assured the court that Mifflin attended church, helped out in the community, would be missed. He was a father, out of work, with a lovely wife and children to support. Not a crazed dope fiend, but a decent man, just desperate, said his brother. A police officer reported he'd been suspected in several crimes and charged with burglary once before. But those charges had been dropped for lack of evidence. The court ruled that information inadmissible. Mifflin testified he did not recall reaching for the knife. He did not realize he stabbed my mother. Twenty-eight times. When I pulled the knife from my mother's brain, effectively I destroyed his fingerprints. All throughout the trial, I felt nothing. Just stared at Mifflin, memorizing how he looked, his mannerisms, and finally his cursory testimony. The entire process had been like mining a vein that turned out to be corrupted. And the further along we traveled, the worse it got. The delays only helped his case. And the deals. Not murder one for Mr. Mifflin, who pleaded guilty, but manslaughter. Twenty years. He had already served four. He would be eligible for parole after another six. The system failed me. But I vowed not to fail my mother. How do you kill a murderer? It's not as easy as one might think. It takes a lot of planning. Alexander Mifflin was paranoid. He assumed everyone had an intent as evil as his own. I understand paranoia. I've lived with it since that Christmas Eve. I have not felt safe since because there are other Alexander Mifflins in the world, and you never know when they will invade the privacy of your home and take control of your life and stab you or a loved one to death. You understand that, I know. You read the news. You have the same fears. During those years of growing up without her, when I needed my mother most, I developed a plan. The day he entered that penitentiary as a convicted prisoner, legally I changed my name. I earned a B.A. and then an M.A. in social work. All the while, I was doing time, too, waiting for Mifflin. In anticipation of his release, I changed my hair color, even the color of my eyes. I needed contact lenses anyway, and blue to green was not much of a stretch. The business suit and crisp haircut that had become my disguise were a far cry from the sweater and skirt and shoulder-length hair he would remember. With my excellent grades at university, I could have taken a job anywhere. But I wanted to work for the province, in correctional services. Normally, the so-called easy cases, like Mifflin, are the plums, and newbies are assigned the junk no one else wants. I told my supervisor I needed extra work and begged for Mifflin's case. I wanted to research a case with a good prospect for rehab. She was happy to get rid of an extra file folder. That Thursday morning of his release, Thor's Day, I phoned his wife and told her not to bother taking the 600-kilometer bus ride to the prison. I'll get him, I assured her. I left a message with the warden's office with instructions for Mifflin to meet me at the gate. I would drive him home. It was partially true. I did meet him at the gate. The day was overcast, as I remember, with steely clouds hanging low over the British Columbia mountains, determined to imprison the sun. The day suited my mood. It's inappropriate to feel jolly when a life is about to be extinguished. Even I know that. I watched him walk out of the prison a free man.
Mifflin reeked of guilt. But his guilt would not bring back my mother, and I wasn't about to forgive him. He would not make it home to his lovely wife and three children. He would not resume his good works in the community. He wouldn't make it past the parking lot. Mifflin hadn't seen me in six years, since the case finally came to trial. My testimony had been brief. Over that week as the travesty of justice unfolded, he faced front and didn't look at me, although my eyes were drawn to him like iron filings to a magnet. I will never forget his left profile. He looked the same, although his muscles were more developed, presumably from working out in the prison gym, and his cheeks more gaunt. Mr. Mifflin, I said, removing my glove and extending a hand. I wanted to feel the skin of this killer, the flesh that held the knife that had ended my mother's life. Is the flesh of a killer different from normal flesh? Would I feel the slippery blood of my mother that had seeped into his pores ten years before, blood that could never be washed away? He shook my hand. His grip was not as firm nor as cool as I'd anticipated, but mine made up for it. He looked at me skeptically. Sheila McNeil, I said. Your new caseworker. Mifflin ran a hand through his graying hair. His brown eyes reflected confusion. He didn't know what to do with me. Maybe it was hard for him to be in the presence of a woman without a weapon of destruction. I have a car, I said. This way. I slid behind the wheel of the tan Dotson, and he got in on the passenger side. I sat without turning the key, staring at his left profile. He fidgeted, punched his thigh in nervousness, looked out the window. Mind if I smoke? he asked, pulling out a pack of Rothmans. Yes, I do, I said. He slid the pack back inside his jacket submissively. The silence was getting to him. Finally, he turned. Do you need my address? I know your address. He scratched his head. Can we get going? My wife's waiting. Christmas, you know? The kids and all. I know everything I need to know about you, Mr. Mifflin. All but one thing. He waited, expectant. How did you feel as you murdered Mrs. Brodigam? How did I feel? Now he was really uncomfortable. Look, I talked to a shrink about all this inside. He shifted and turned away from me. Can't we talk about this later? That's not possible, Mr. Mifflin. He turned back, his eyes narrowed. He struggled to make a connection, but there wasn't enough left of the girl who had watched her mother die. And it wasn't just the physical changes. I was no longer vulnerable. But he was. He put his hand on the door handle. Look, I'll catch the bus. The last bus is gone, I told him. And I believe your parole stipulates that you are required to meet certain conditions, including working with your social worker. I simply want to know how you felt. That's all. When you stabbed Mrs. Brodigam twenty-eight times, and her blood gushed out, spattering you with red gore, and her screams filled your ears, and her son and daughter watched their mother die, how did you feel? He turned away. In a small voice, he said, I don't remember. I need to know how it feels, I said, slipping a hand into my briefcase, because I don't remember feelings either. I hit the automatic door lock. His head snapped back. I used both hands to plunge the knife into his left eye. I had sharpened the hangle daily after the police returned it. Most of the six inches slid in as easily as if it were pie dough I was cutting. 
I felt the finely honed steel pass the eyeball and enter the pale brain tissue. He clamped his hands around my wrists. I couldn't tell if he was trying to pull the blade out or helping me push it in as far as it would go, but I held tight. Mifflin went rigid. He stared at me for a moment, his face creased with uncomprehending horror, his pierced brain struggling to make the awful connection. His hand clutched the handle and he yanked the blade out. Blood spurted into my face, across the windshield, over his brand new prison release shirt. He was shocked. Before he could react, I grabbed the knife and stabbed him 27 more times, counting aloud. He didn't struggle like my mother. He did not possess her character, the same character her daughter possesses. The media would be surprised to know how passionate I felt as I stabbed him. My feelings, the first after so many years, were surely different from whatever Mifflin must have felt as he murdered my mother. Although I'll never be certain. Pressure lifted from my heart when I pierced his. My mind cleared of thoughts as blood and brain tissue gushed from his mutilated left eye. His body cooled and I defrosted. I watched his life dwindle much as I had watched my mother's life fade. And now I felt released. Finally, I'd reached the end of the corrupted vein and moved beyond that constricting tunnel into a world of complete and utter freedom. I had arrived back where I began, into a state of innocence. Justice had been accomplished. Don't you agree? Many questions have been asked about me, but I have questions of my own, and I hope you'll consider them calmly and rationally now that you've heard how it was. Do I deserve a worse fate than Mifflin's? Is my crime more heinous than his? I'm charged with murder one. The papers say I'll get life in prison unless I plead insanity, but I can't do that. He killed my mother. I killed him. What act could be more rational? An eye for an eye. Isn't that the purest form of justice? You decide. Thank you for that, Nancy, and thank you for the conversation. It was great sport. An Eye for an Eye, by the way, was originally published in 2001 in Cold Comfort. It was read for us tonight by Ruth Stearns. Ruth was a new voice for us here in the Nook back in oh, episode 39 when she read Tim Wagner's wonderful point-of-view zombie tale, Do No Harm. And we are glad to have her back. While Ruth enjoys narration, she also writes speculative fiction. And I repeat, we are lucky that we have so many writers who do double duty as narrators. Writers know that words are substance, so who better than they to cast the light and shadow required by our kind of tale-telling? Hmm? In addition to writing and reading, Ruth also says she is best known for combating curricular entropy as a college administrator. You can meet her and read her at her blog, letmewritethat.wordpress.com. And, by the way, thank you, all of you, who attended Joe Haldeman's seminar at the Starship Sofa last week. I hope you enjoyed it. 
And I hope you will stop by Tales to Terrify's webpage and buy the book, as mentioned. Then stop by the forum and let us know what you think. Then stop by the iTunes page and let the world know just how much you love our little weekly gatherings here in the Nook. And then I hope, I hope that you will be back again next week. And if you are a writer, I hope you'll send us your stories. And if you are a reader, I hope you'll let us know you exist so we can tap you to narrate a tale or two here in the nook for your friends. Just check the guidelines section on the website. And, yes, that will be that for the week. Ah, (laughs) no, of course not. One more thing. I mentioned recently that our assistant editor, Harry Markoff, was leaving the show in order to, well, do whatever it is people do when they're no longer working here. Now, I would like you to welcome Cher Eves to the nook. Cher graduated ninth in her class from John Marshall Law School here in Chicago and has worked as a narcotics prosecutor and a capital defense attorney. She retired from criminal defense after 15 years and, on April 2, 2012, was sworn into practice before the United States Supreme Court. By day, Cher works as a Social Security and Workers' Compensation attorney with Kesslin and Cecil Law Firm, securing the rights of injured workers in western Kentucky. Cher also has an M.S. in library science from the University of Illinois. The skills gathered under that degree have come in handy in her work at Crime City Central, she says, and will undoubtedly serve her in good stead here at Tales to Terrify. Her B.A. in political science from the University of Louisiana really serves no purpose. She said that, not I. In addition, Cher also spends time sitting with dying people for Hospice of Western Kentucky, and she serves meals at Warm Blessing Soup Kitchen. For fun, Cher judges mock trial competitions for Eastern Kentucky University. She acts in theater and film projects at Western Kentucky University and takes random college classes, presumably at Western Kentucky University. Cher says that she found her way into the District of Wonders as a narrator for the Starship Sofa, Tony C. Smith recognizing her as possessed of an endless supply of time and energy, roped her into working at Crime City Central, and recently lured her into taking on a similar job for Tales to Terrify. So, stop by the forum and say hello. And that... Children of the Night is that. I would have you be up and doing, bright and, well, yes. You'll need to be chipper this evening. We have darkness, we have wind, we have still and empty side streets, and down the way where the trees gather and the hedges huddle, there may be some rustlings that you notice as you pass. Don't worry, you you won't need a little pig to carry as a sacrificial offering. There are so very few wolves left in the nearbys and the close at hands, but ah, yes, coyotes. We have had word of coyotes. Well, as I say, if you're chipper enough, you'll make it home with little danger. From the animals, at least. 
there are oh, there are other things out there that might be interested in you, but but you will make it home. I know you will, and you'll make it into bed, and the covers will give you shelter, and you'll snuggle your way to very pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.